to Transformation Station. They'll meet in the lobby back here, and then, and then they'll get situated with their classes in the gym. If you're new and you haven't checked your child in, you can just slide in the back here, and they'll get you squared away and show you where to go. And so as they're sliding out, let me encourage you to grab a copy of God's Word, and we're going to be in the Gospel of John. So go ahead and turn to, to chapter 1, verse 1. If you have a Bible that we provide, and, and you'll notice we have Bibles in the back near the entrance, it'll be on page 800. And 86, John chapter 1, go ahead and turn to verse 1. Well, this morning, what we're going to do is give an introduction to the gospel of John. Now, I know what you're thinking. You hear that introduction, and you're like, seriously, John? Like, I'd rather watch the Yankees play in the playoffs than to sit through an introduction no, that's, that's no fun. I mean, let, let me explain why we're doing what we're doing today. How many of you like to watch a good movie? Okay. I see a, a good number of hands. See, see that in the back back there? I love to watch a good movie as well, but I rarely watch a movie where I know absolutely nothing about the plot line. I mean, what do you do? Before you go and see a movie, what do you do? You watch the trailer. It's the preview. That's why they're throwing it up everywhere, from the internet to the TV. They, if they got the trailers, that's going to give you, it's going to entice you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to give you enough to make you want to go see it, but it's not going to tell you everything so that you've actually got to go and see the movie. Well, my hope today is that this introduction will be like a trailer It'll whet your appetite for even more of what we're going to see in this study of the Gospel of John. So we're not going to see the ins and outs today. We're not going to look at every little detail. But our goal is to look at the big picture. What is, what is going on in the Gospel of John? If you were to just think we're 30,000 feet up. Looking down, beginning, middle, end. And so before jumping right in, we want to see where it's headed. And so that's what we're going to do today. And then in the following weeks, we're going to come back and we're going to go verse by verse. From verse 1 all the way to the end of chapter 21 in this chapter. And so here's what we're going to do today as we look at this introduction. A few questions you're probably wondering yourself. Who wrote the Gospel of John? When did he write it? Where did he write it from? Who did he write it to? What is this thing that we call the Gospel? And then finally, where I want us to spend most of our time today is looking at why did he write this and the purpose that he sets forth in his Gospel. So where are we going to start? We're going to start right at the beginning Actually, even before verse 1, we're going to start with the title. And so the, the first thing that we're going to look at today is the author. And, and as we come to the Gospel of John, we see that the title is entitled The Gospel According to John. If you spent any time in John, you, you may not know this, you may know this, but the, titer, the, the author does not reveal himself by name in this gospel. But we do know a few things about the author as we read it. And the first thing that we see is that this author was an eyewitness 
of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Look here in chapter 1, verse 14. And here's how we're going to roll today. We're not going to be in just a few verses. We're actually going to cover a good bit in and out of the Gospel of John. So we'll be, if you'll just hang out in John and you can and find references, we're going to be flipping through. So chapter 1, verse 14, the author writes this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he continues, we have seen his glory. Whoever's writing this is writing from the perspective of an eyewitness. He dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. And this is important. You see, John, sometimes people say that John is the spiritual gospel, or a gospel that's devoted to theological interpretation. But we see here that it's important that John is not just providing some theological interpretation. He was actually an eyewitness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But second, we find out here is that this author was not only an eyewitness, he was one of the 12 apostles. Turn with me to the end of the gospel. Let's go to, to chapter 21. You can find a lot about a purpose and structure of the book by looking at the beginning and then looking at the end. In John chapter 21, this is the epilogue. I'm going to start reading in verse 20. And this is what the gospel says. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Just pause for a second. Did, did you hear that phrase? Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. We're going to come back to that, but you're going to see it continue to come up. This guy was following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that you remain until I come, what is that to you? And then verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. And who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Did you catch that? Who is the disciple that is writing these things? It is the disciple whom Jesus loved. This author throughout the gospel of John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, a few other things stick out here in verse 24. We see this disciple's one who's bearing witness. Again, he's an eyewitness. He is testifying about the things that are, that are true. We know his testimony is true. So the author was an eyewitness. The author was a disciple, namely the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then finally, we can conclude this disciple whom Jesus loved is none other than John, the son of Zebedee. You may be asking, well, how do we know that? Well, there are a number of reasons. Um, I'm not going to give them all to us today. Um, but the disciple John is mentioned nowhere in this gospel. Now, we, we read uh, chapter 1 earlier, 
And we heard about a John, right? Now, John came and bore witness to the light. What John is that? It's John the Baptist. But in every gospel, what is, how is John the Baptist referred to? He's called John the Baptist. How does this author refer to him? Just simply as John. Why is that? Because there's, it would have been clear in the other gospels you're trying to separate John the Baptist from John the disciple. But if John the disciple is the one who's writing it, it's pretty clear. He doesn't need to specify that. The John that he's referring to would be John the Baptist because he is John the disciple. Other arguments that clarify that this is the disciple John who's writing this is that as you read through the gospel of John, you always find that the disciple whom Jesus loved is often right with Peter. Now, who was in the inner circle with Jesus? There were three of them. Peter, James, and John. And so what you can do is you can take the references in the Gospel of John and go to the other Gospels and you can say, okay, this is who the disciple whom Jesus loved and he's with Peter. Well, who's with Peter in this other Gospel? And what you see is that it was John. Now, even when we go to Acts, And we continue on in studying the early church. Who was it engaging in mission together? It was Peter and John. We could go to Galatians. It refers to them along with James as the pillars of the church. You may be asking, why why couldn't it be James? Well, James died in A.D. 42. This is written most likely in the late 80s to early 90s. It's impossible that James could have written the Gospel of John. So that clarifies it for us that the author is the disciple of Jesus, John the son of Zebedee. He was a Palestinian Jew, and he was a part of the inner circle in Jesus' discipleship. But let me just come back to this for a second. What is the significance of this author calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, how many of you, like, have taken this title? Like, hey, hey, my, you did a meet and greet earlier. Hey, stand up, greet somebody. Hey, my name's John. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. How would that come across to you? Arrogant? Who thinks it's arrogant? Hey, let's be honest. It, it has a flair of, I'm the one that Jesus loved. I mean, you know, you hang around kids and, you know, they, they fight over like, no, he loves me the most or mama's, you know, or dad loves me the most. It, it, it has a flair of arrogance. But that is not what John is intending to convey. Let me give you a parallel reference. Paul, in Galatians 2.20, just listen with me, says this, I have been crucified with Christ. Anybody know this verse? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Thank you. Awesome. You guys hear that? Do you hear Paul, do you, do you hear Paul being arrogant there? He, he died and loved me. He gave himself for me. No, what we see there is Paul is is enamored and embraced with the love of God that this is his response. He loved me 
He died for me. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, reflects on this, and he says this. Those who are most profoundly aware of their own sin and need and who in consequence most deeply feel the wonders of the grace of God that has reached out and saved them, even them are those who are most likely to talk about themselves as the object of God's love in Christ Jesus. Carson continues, and he says this, to speak of being loved by Christ isn't a mark of arrogance, it's a mark of brokenness. So I just want to pause here for a second. As you even reflect on your relationship with Christ, do you realize that you are far more loved than you could ever imagine? Now I know it's tempting to think that John is being arrogant, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But how would your week be different if this was your identity? I am loved by Christ. Are you with me? To wake up, I'm loved. In, in, in light, what does Carson say? The one who was profoundly aware of his own sin, that's the person who's going to be proclaiming, I am one who is radically loved by Christ. Jesus said himself, he says, the person who has been forgiven much does what? Loves much. When's the last time that you were just broken over your own sin and the magnitude, the depths, the ocean depths of the love of God in Christ? That is the heartbeat of the author. So when you hear these words in John, for God so loved the world, John is reflecting and hearing that great love that has come to himself. Second, let's look at the setting here. We've seen the author what, what's John doing, when, where? I've already mentioned here, most scholars agree that John wrote sometime after the destruction of the temple, which would have been AD 70, and sometime before his death, which is known around AD 100. So most, most put this timing in the mid-80s to the early 90s. There are a number of, of reasons for this. Um, what we just read, that last part of John 21 is a reference to Jesus talking about Peter's, how he's going to die. And so this is most likely written after Peter's martyrdom and all of the references to the temple in John alluding to Jesus being the fulfillment of the temple or most likely evidence that this was written to believers after the destruction of the temple. How are they to continue and live in this new covenant community in light of the temple that's been destroyed? And Jesus is telling them, worship, true worship, is not in a temple or on a location or a mountain. True worship is what? In spirit and in truth. And these are the type of worshipers my father is seeking after, John four twenty. And so the latter part of the first century was when this was written. Most likely the place that John wrote this from was Ephesus. is where he spent some of his time in his latter years. 
Um, And to whom did he write? Would have consisted of both Jews and Gentiles living in Ephesus and then beyond in the larger Greco-Roman world at the close of the first century. We know that it's Jewish and Gentile because we see elements of both of these in John's writing. For instance, John shows awareness of Jewish readers by demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah. So we're going to see in a second in this purpose statement where John's going to argue that here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to convince you that Jesus is the Messiah. And this language Messiah is from the Old Testament which proclaimed and prophesied of the coming anointed one the Messiah, the Christ, and, and that's one of John's purposes. So it seems to be that he's, he's writing to a Jewish audience, and so Jesus is fulfilling these Old Testament promises and prophecies, but there are also Gentile elements as well. For instance, we read the intro a second ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This idea, this Jesus was the word, the logos, is being written in the backdrop of Greek thought. We also know that he's writing to a Gentile audience because John is also explaining a number of the Jewish customs that he writes about. So he's aware that the Jews are reading it. He's also aware that there are Gentiles that are reading it. So he's explaining a number of the elements and in this, I want to move on to, okay, so we know when he wrote it, to whom that he wrote it. What was he writing? We see here that this is titled, The Gospel According to John. He wrote a gospel. We hear this, this, this word often, and oftentimes we glaze over it. But this word simply means good news. Now, let me just pause for a second, because I want to help set the gospel of John within the story of redemption and what God's been doing from the very beginning. And so let's go all the way back to the beginning of the story in Act 1. And we find that in Act 1, we have creation, that God establishes his kingdom in creation. He creates all things. And then in Act 2, we see there's rebellion in the kingdom at the fall. So Adam and Eve rebel against God. They decide to be their own God. And, and because of that, they receive the consequence. He said, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. They experience physical death and separation from God. And they are kicked out of the garden, the place of rest, the place of God, the place of God's blessing. And we come to Act 3. Act 3 is Israel. The king chooses Israel and initiates redemption. If you've ever just wondered, man, what is the whole purpose of Israel? You've got this whole Old Testament, which is primarily written to this people that God chose. It's because God chose a people to bring redemption. And so you can go as early as Genesis chapter 3 at the fall where God's promising that there's going to be an offspring that's going to come from the woman and this offspring is going to be the one that's going to bring redemption. And God chooses Israel, the people most unlikely to be chosen to bring about his redemption. And so you start tracing through the Old Testament and you start asking, who is it that God is going to use to bring redemption. And so you go from Abraham 
And you start going all the way down. And you come to the kings of Israel. And you've got King David. And then you get to King Solomon, the high point. And you're thinking, maybe this is the king that's going to bring redemption and restore the right rule of God. But you find out really soon that that's not Solomon. And then Israel's history begins to take a downward turn. And king after king turned from the Lord. And God tells them this. He says, if you do not follow my commands, then you will face exile. So just like the first Adam and Eve were exiled out of the land of God because they disobeyed God. God then brought Israel back with pictures of redemption. You've got the whole exodus and crossing over the Red Sea and bringing them through the wilderness, bringing them to the promised land, the the place where there would be a tabernacle and a temple and the presence of God and the blessing of God that they enjoyed, and yet they still rebelled against God. And so they've got like a new Eden there. And they choose rebellion. And so what happens is they're exiled again out of the land. And Israel is scattered among the nations. That's how Act 3 ends. It ends with Israel coming back as they've been scattered. As you read Ezra and Nehemiah. And they're returning. And they're starting to rebuild the walls. And rebuild the temple. And yet you still have this sense that they are longing for this promised Messiah. This promised King. And then you come to Act 4. Act 4. King Jesus comes. Accomplishing redemption. And this is what we have in the Gospels. We actually have four accounts of this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These four Gospels are our main source of knowledge for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Now get this. A Gospel is not an exhaustive biography. In fact, we don't know everything that Jesus did. We don't, we don't know a good bit about the early part of his life. Most of them talk about his birth and move quickly on to three years of ministry and then spend half of the gospel on the last week of his life on the death and resurrection of Christ. And so since we have four accounts, there's no one definitive biography of Jesus. So you may be sitting there asking, why do we need four accounts? Like, why not? Just one. And I would argue that because a picture or portrait is more complete when viewed from different angles and perspectives. And what we have in the four accounts of the one gospel, and get that, there are not four gospels. There is one gospel and there are four accounts of the one gospel And they each look at Jesus from their own distinct angle and perspective and for a distinct purpose. Yet, though differing in structure, they all attest to a unified picture of who Jesus was. But get this. These four books are more than just historical documents. They're not just laying out the facts. They're also helping interpret the implications of these historical realities for your life 
and for my life. I love what William Barclay says. He says this, A gospel is not a historical document and nothing else. But a gospel is an attempt to present the portrait and teaching of Jesus in such a way that those who read it will also take him as Savior, Master, and Lord. But I want to raise another question. Why is John so different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke? If, you, if you've spent any time reading the Gospels, it doesn't take too long to figure out the differences. For instance, we just read the intro to John. Where does John start his Gospel? He goes to eternity past. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He doesn't start at the birth of Christ or even the prophecies about the birth of Christ. He goes all the way back to eternity past, and that's where he begins. In fact, John, in some senses, is hinting at there's a new creation that's coming. We had an initial creation in the beginning. God created, and now in Christ, there, here's what redemption is. Redemption is a new creation, It is in Christ he is renewing and redeeming and restoring all things. So in the beginning was the word. God starts over with a new Adam. And this new Adam is one who is going to perfectly obey him. And yet he's also going to be the one that's going to lay down his life and suffer so that you may be reconciled and redeemed to God. But listen to these facts. Only 8% of John parallels the synoptics. Now, the synoptics is a word used for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a word that means to see together. So they're called the synoptics. Get that, 8%. That's what they've got in common, which means 92% of John is unique to himself. So why? Why do we have the gospel of John? As we'll see later, John structures his gospel around seven signs. And he's going to tell you, he's going to say, look, my purpose is not to tell you everything Jesus did. What I'm going to tell you is I'm going to select a few signs, and then I'm going to expound on those and implications they have for your life. So get this. If John wrote in the mid 80s to early 90s. Anybody have an idea when the other Gospels were written? Much earlier. Like 60s. You guys following me? It's probably likely that John was well aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now some have concluded what John's doing is that he's writing to replace them or correct them. And I would beg that that's not the case at all. He's not writing to correct them or to replace them. He is providing an interpretive account grounded firmly in historical events. And he's doing this. He's seeking to develop, supplement, and bring out more fully the spiritual significance of the events of Jesus Christ. So he's not correcting, he's not replacing, he's developing. He's writing for the church so that 
I love as, as my professor, Dr. Andreas Kostenberger at Southeastern Seminary writes in his commentary, he says this, on a larger canonical level, once prepared by the synoptic witness, the readers are ready to climb the Johannine Peak. And so it's like the synoptics give you a similar foundation for Christ, and then John's taking you up on the peak, and he's showing you even more gloriously the greatness of who Christ is. Now here's what I want to do. We've looked at the author, we've looked at the setting, I want to spend the last part of our time looking at the purpose. So turn with me to John chapter 20, verse 30. John chapter 20, verse 30. The purpose and theme of John's gospel can be found in these two verses. And these two verses are our meta-memo this week that we want to meditate on and we want to memorize. It's often you find a purpose statement either at the beginning of the book or at the end of the book. And so that's what we find here. And it's important that we ground our understanding of John in his purpose statement. So get this. This isn't what I think his purpose statement is. You're going to see pretty clearly, this is what John's telling us his purpose statement is. And so if, if he's telling us this is why I wrote it, we've got to read it in accordance with why he wrote it. And so we're going to see especially the significance of the Messiah and the signs which he mentioned. So let me read these verses. John 20, Verses 30 and 31, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Let me just pause here real quick. Turn to 2125. Turn one page over. 2125. Look what John writes. He says this, the very last verse of his gospel. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Do you get that? So is John telling us everything about Jesus? No. He's admitting there's a lot out there. In fact, there's, we couldn't exhaust Jesus with books. But what he's doing is he's selecting specific signs for his intended purpose. Now let's go back to verse 30 and 31 of chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, purpose statement, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's what I want to do. We're going to look at the Messiah. We're going to talk about signs. We're going to talk about belief. And we're going to talk about live. That's where we're headed. And we're going to wrap up. So the Messiah. This word Messiah, you, you see it here, that Jesus is the Christ. This word Christ here is Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. The Greek translation of it is Christ. So you hear Jesus Christ, that's saying the man, Jesus, is the promised Messiah, the Christ. So we call him Jesus Christ. The Old Testament background here, I've given you Psalm chapter 2 here. And this Messiah language, you see it all through the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his 
Anointed. That word anointed there, that's Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And so you have this Psalm 2 speaking about the anointed one. And then later in verse 7, this is what it says. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You hear that? You've got anointed one in the same song. You, Psalm, you have the, the Lord, the Father saying, today, this is my son. I've begotten you. And you read John 20, verse 31, that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The Old Testament proclaimed and prophesied that there would be a Messiah and this Messiah would be the Son of God. We could spend many hours looking at references to Jesus as, or, or this, this concept of the Old Testament as a Messiah who would be the Son of God. For sake of time, we're not going to go there now. But you, you see it all the way through from Genesis all the way through the prophets arguing for this. And this is why John's writing. He's writing to convince people that that one spoken of from Genesis to Malachi, that one spoken of is Jesus. This this redemption that I initiated by choosing Israel finds its culmination in Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the Messiah. Redemption is found in him. Now, I don't know everybody that's here today. And there may be some of you that say, man, I'm here and and I like that subtitle. The Gospel of John, Believe and Live, Exploring Jesus. Maybe you're here and say, man, that's who I am. I'm exploring Jesus. I'm not in yet. But I would just encourage you that you would read through John and even come back and hear these sermons and that you would ask, hey, God, if Jesus is really the Messiah, the Son of God, would you make that plainly clear to me? I would just ask that that you would pray that as you read through John and as you hear sermons. And you say, God, help me, teach me to understand. That's why John wrote this. And we see this. I'm just going to highlight a few ways that we see this through the gospel of John. I'm going to highlight them. We don't have a chance to turn to them now. But as we walk through verse by verse later, we'll have a chance to come back and see these. We see that Jesus is the Son of God of man. We see Jesus is the prophet like Moses. We see Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish festivals and institutions, including the temple. There's going to be a whole section that John's going to go through, and it's all these Jewish festivals, and Jesus is saying, yeah, G-, John's saying, yep, Jesus, he's the bread of life. Yep, Jesus, he's the light of the world. Like, those are referring to Jewish festivals that they were practicing. And John's saying, that's Jesus. That was a shadow. The true substance is Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant. As John the Baptist is going to proclaim, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So just know this. As we study through John, would you pray that God would make it ever clear to you who Jesus the Messiah is? Connected with this, as we study through John, we're going to see a number of I am statements. There are seven of them. You're going to see this number seven is a significant number in John. When we see the number seven in the Bible, it's a number that usually refers to complete, completeness, to, to wholeness. And so when you have seven references to Jesus as the I am, what do you think John's wanting us to walk away with? 
He must be the I am. And so if you're new to kind of Jesus and Christianity, this I am language is going to the Old Testament. Man, Moses in the burning bush is confronted with God and he says, who are you? And God says, I am. And all through the Old Testament, God's referring to himself as I am. It's not like I will be or I was. It's like I am. God is a forever I am. There is no past or or future. Like I am. And John is saying that I am is Jesus. And so we see that Jesus, we see these I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Son of God. That was why John wrote. But he says this, I've written, how is he going to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah? He, he says this, but, but these signs I've written to you are to point to that. So what we see as we study through John is, and you could, you could go search this, just pull up and say, where do, where do you see the word sign show up in the gospel of John? And we see that John is writing and he's including certain signs. And what does a sign do? Let me ask you this. Did anybody see a Redemption Hill Church sign this morning? James and Muta, I see the hands raised. What did the sign do? Is the sign like, is the goal to like come and, oh, there's the sign. I'm going to hang out around the sign. No, the sign is pointing. And so as you read John, I want you to see these signs as pointers. Like it's, the, the goal is not to hang out with the signs. The goal is to ask, what is this pointing to? It's like you're driving down the interstate And you see a sign, exit 31, with an arrow. The sign is pointing you to a destination. And that's what's going on here in the Gospel of John. He's writing these signs that are pointers. And what they're pointing to is Jesus and the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, to be a sign, characteristic of these signs in the Gospel of John, it had to be a public work of Jesus. Second, it had to be explicitly identified as such in John's gospel. And, and notice this. A sign didn't necessarily have to be miraculous. There could be a sign in the Old Testament, and it didn't have to be something that was a miracle. But to be a sign in the gospel of John, it had to actually have the word that it's a sign. And so there, it had to explicitly identify as a sign. And then find, finally, signs point to God's glory, revealing Jesus as God's authoritative representative. How did we really know that Jesus was the Christ? John's saying, look at these signs. They will affirm that Jesus is God's authoritative representative. And so as you, if you were to study authors, you would see that most agree on six of them. And, and there's a dispute on, on is there a seventh one or, or not. I'm going to argue, my professor, Dr. Kostenberger, taught me well, um, that there are actually seven signs because the number of seven is actually significant in John. Um, and so looked at that way, I want to give those to you. The first one is this, changing water into wine. Now, we're not going to have time to unpack these today. 
But what I, I just want to highlight the significance, and, and then we're going to move on. Jesus changes water to wine. The second one, Jesus clears the temple. The second one is one that is disputed, um, but I think that this was meant to be included as a sign. It actually explicitly refers to itself as a sign. And so when we get to that section, we can talk about that. The third one, the healing of the nobleman's son. The fourth one, healing of the lame man. The feeding of the multitude. The healing of a blind man. And then raising Lazarus from the dead. Seven of them. Now just look at these real quick. Is there any progression in these signs? What's easier, to turn water into wine or to raise the dead? I don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us, right? But it seems to be there's some significance to the raising of the dead. I mean, what's Jesus going to do, right? He's going to die and he's going to raise from the dead. This is the ultimate picture where we see brokenness in this world. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and because of that, they will die. And so death is is the ultimate of brokenness, spiritual and physical death. And Jesus came to reverse that. And so I think with there being seven signs, if there are seven, the seventh sign is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And I don't think that's insignificant because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to bring life. Now what we also see is that this helps us understand the structure The last sign in the Gospel of John occurs in what chapter? Chapter 11. You see that? Raising of Lazarus. How many chapters are in John? There are 21. So let me just show you what, because of this, this purpose statement, John wrote to give us these signs that convince us Jesus the Christ that we might believe and live. And this is how he structures his gospel. So you have an introduction in chapter 1. This is what we read this morning. Then you have the book of signs. The rest of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 12. Those occur, those signs. And what you're going to see at the end of chapter 12, you're going to see Jesus did these signs... Primarily, he was trying to convince his own people. Jesus says, I came to my own. And what did his own do? His own rejected him. This is why Paul later says, the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. That's the the pattern of Jesus' ministry. He came to his own. These signs were to convince his own Jewish people that Jesus was the promised Messiah. When you come to the end of chapter 12, you see, for the most part, that they have not embraced these signs. In fact, they're going to condemn him to death. And so then you have chapter 13 through chapter 20, the book of glory. And this is the Messiah's passion. It's primarily focused on the last week of his life. And it's Jesus preparing the new covenant community for when he would go and be with the Father and how the Spirit would work through them and how they would engage in his mission. And so just keep this in mind. As we study through John, that first half is going to be heavy on signs. The last half is going to be preparing this new community for Jesus' departure. And then you have a chapter that is an epilogue to conclude this gospel. Let's move on. You've got the Messiah. You've got the signs. You've got the response. Belief. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. But what 
what, what it was John after. He says, I've written these signs that you might believe. You see, Jesus is no longer walking in our midst. And what John is moving from in his gospel is the importance not of seeing and believing, but believing without seeing. That you might now hear this testimony that is true and believe. The good news is that the primary recipients of Jesus' signs were the Jews. But as we study John, we're going to see that this invitation is open to all. That even today, if you were to believe, to believe, to place your trust, not an intellectual, but your whole being, that, that you would place, that, that all the chips of your life would be in, that it's all in. You're placing your trust in Jesus. If you would truly believe, you would have life. And I believe that John's, he's writing with an evangelistic fervor, like he really wants people to believe in Jesus, but I also think that he's writing to believers to strengthen their faith, to continue to show them how Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament and how he can change their life. And so this, this call to believe is for those who are far from Christ. I would beg with you today to believe, to call out, to confess Jesus as Lord, and for believers to continue to grow in the depths of your belief in Christ. And I would say the depths of your belief is in comparison with the results that you will receive which John says is life, eternal life. John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that you would have life and have it to the full. So I want to end with this. This gospel is what life is about. Yes, it's about eternal communion with Jesus, but John's going to argue that eternal communion, when does it begin? Now, if you right now were to believe, you would step over from death into life. And John's going to argue that Jesus came not just to bring life one day when you die, but that right now you would truly experience life. Jesus is going to say that life, true, satisfying life, is only found in me. So you know what? I know every single one of you right now are facing temptation to go find life elsewhere. And this sermon series is about believe and live in Jesus. So the point of this gospel, and the point of this sermon today is this, that you would believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, and experience eternal life even now.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the true testimony of John. God, would you show us where we are going to sources that offer life but can't bring life? God, would you break us of idols that we are running after that will not satisfy? And would you increase our knowledge and our belief and our trust and our embrace of Jesus as the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah, that we may live. God, would we be a new covenant community that displays to Medford and greater Boston, this is where life is found. It's in Christ. And would we hold out these living waters to others to say, come and drink and find satisfaction for your thirst. God, we ask that you would do this in us and through us. In Christ's name, amen.